I feel a little more nervous in front of people that I know than, than I do when I'm down at MCRD in front of people I don't know. <laughs> um, does everyone have one of these uh, handouts? It has Psalm 118 on it, which I'm going to be talking about tonight. You know, the whole Bible is a book of Revelation. It's, it starts in Genesis, and it ends in Revelations 22, 21. And in between, we have an unveiling of the theme of salvation. And right in the middle of the Bible is Psalm 118. And in the very middle of all Scripture is verse 8, which reads, it's better to trust, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Let me open in prayer here. Lord God, we thank you for your enduring, steadfast love as, as we come now to, in praise and, and gratitude. We thank you for your son Jesus and the salvation that you've made available to us in him and the helper that he's brought, your Holy Spirit. You have become our salvation. It is marvelous in our eyes, and we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm not going to read the whole... Um, psalm here. Um, I'm, I'm going to read the, the certain sections to start this off, and then I will cover and make comments on the whole psalm. <clears throat> you know, the, in Hebrew, the book of Psalms is titled the book of praises. So going right uh, with your handout here to verse 4, let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Going down to verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And then verse 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. You know, if you've read the Psalms, you can't help but note the beauty of the language, the poetic expression, the great truths of faith. Psalm 118 is all that and more. You know, John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all parts of the soul. There's not an emotion established in the Psalms that doesn't mirror any of us. Now, as I proceed, I'd like to uh, note some principles of biblical interpretation. And I'm not exactly sure how to give attribution for, to this because there's a couple people that have influenced uh, the way I think about this. One is uh, Bill Creasy, uh, Logos Ministries. The other is uh, Wayne Kindy, pastor down at a, a church in, uh, off Rosecrans. So geography, the land's important. We see this from the beginning. <clears throat> Adam and Eve are forced out of the, the geography of the Garden of Eden. The call of Abraham was to go to a promised land. There's also the topography. We see that in the Bible. The Bible emerges from history. We, we read about real people, real events. We read about consequences. In fact, do you know the reason to study history? It's to learn prudence. The Bible is a unified literary narrative. It's a, it's a linear narrative. It, it occurs over many centuries, and it includes different literary forms. Uh, history, poetry, prophecies, biographies, doctrine. 
Vody Bauckham uh, said, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. You know, unlike other ancient literature, it claims to be, the Bible claims to be the very word of God. And the Bible is rare in the belief of only one God. You know, I want to add a, a, another principle. It's a constant that I find all throughout Scripture. Promises made, promises fulfilled. Not by us. These are all on God's initiative alone. There, there's three auxiliary principles. You know, context is key. Where have you heard that before? Scripture defines Scripture. Scripture should be read from the general to the particular. That's Martin Lloyd-Jones. And one last thing I want to mention as it relates to Psalm 118 has to do with what literature teachers call stepping into the narrative. <clears throat> when Hamlet says, to be or not to be, who hasn't existed with that thought at one time or another? We don't want to stand at a distance imposing our assumptions on the text. We step into that world of the narrative and engage it on the terms of the context. And I mention this now because later I hope to lead us into a connection from a passage in, in Psalm 118 to passages in the New Testament. The Psalms are <clears throat> they're full of Christ. And in Psalm 118, this is going to become very obvious. The message of the Psalms always pulls the soul to Christ. They embrace us the whole of our lives as we call on God the Father to secure us under his wings. We see the power of God, the presence of God, the provision of God, the three Ps. They seem somewhat underappreciated in this day. You know, Psalm 118, we can note the three Ps in abundance. God is steadfast in caring for those who love him. And we can also see subordinate themes, you know, the sinfulness of the righteous. We're not perfect yet. However, we can be forgiven, which Chris covered in Psalm 51 a couple months ago. There's mystery. God can seem indifferent to us at times. Um, the Bible tells us what we need to know, but not everything we'd like to know. And there's confidence in God beyond the present suffering. The Psalms speak a New Testament message, making them prophetic too. There are 326 quotations and allusions from 115 different Psalms in the New Testament. Often in the Gospels, we can see Christ living in the Psalms. The disciples understood from Psalm 69 uh, that the scripture was being fulfilled when Jesus acted against the money changers. Zeal for your houses, consume me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In Psalm 118, there are themes that point to a future time when God's promises will be fulfilled. Then we see that Jesus referred to verse 22 as being about him. He's the stone. He's the stone the builders rejected, and he's become the cornerstone. Psalm 118 is the last of the six Egyptian Hallel Psalms. They commence in Psalm 113, and they go through Psalm 118. And these six Psalms, they were sung during the Passover meal as, a, as the participants remembered their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They all worked to bring about a corporate and personal reflection on God's rescue, his deliverance of his people. In verse 14, they recognized that he's become my salvation. You know, this psalm is full of praises for God's blessing on his people. It's a, 
a song of gratitude and, and thanksgiving. And it's, it's bookended by verses 1 and verse 29, the end. These opening and closing verses come to us from David. David, the king of Israel, as he sings, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God, of our salvation. That's from Chronicles 16, 1 Chronicles 16. You know, there's a foreshadowing that points to the God who dwells with us, who's good, who's steadfast, who delivers us, his people. And he has become our salvation. How? By his divine grace, through his son. And during Passover, Israel remembers their need for salvation. Salvation from slavery in Egypt and salvation from slavery that they were born into. And it foreshadows everyone's need for salvation from the slavery of sin that we're born into and enslaved by. Because we can't save ourselves. In poetry, as in the Psalms, there's a, a variation of words and images. It's, it's different than ordinary prose communication. You know, take this line from Shakespeare. Richard II, I wasted time, now doth time waste me. The reverse order of the word stops us. It causes us to ponder and reflect on the, on the meaning. The Lord God often acts in reverse, too, of what we would expect. I'm reminded of Joseph, sold into slavery, so as to deliver later on his, the very brothers who betrayed him. Who knew? Hebrew poetry also gives us pauses. It allows us to reflect on the existential and the eternal. And it differs from the forms of English poetry that we're most familiar with. For instance, there's an acrostic form that uses successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet in composition. Um, there could be a change of pronouns or tenses or time. It acts kind of the same way as a chord change in, in music. There's a form that occurs in Psalm 118. It's called the center. And this is where you find the critical message in the middle of the poem, not at the climax. This middle binds the whole thing, the, the whole meaning of what we're to ponder. It's what each verse is meant to emphasize. For instance, I'm going to use Psalm 23. We immediately have the shepherd theme. But do sheep dwell in the house? What unifies it is a center, for you are with me. The same center message can be read after each verse in Psalm 118 if you include verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. As we read this psalm, let's slow down and recognize who has become our salvation and why his love is steadfast. No matter what man can do, no matter what surrounds you, whatever the threat, even the temptation, that there is always salvation provided by God eternal salvation. So starting off with uh, verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he's good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You know, these first four verses, they begin with this final psalm of the Egyptian Hallel, as I mentioned. It's sung to celebrate the Passover. It pictures those who first sang it in the rescue from, of Israel from Egypt, the, and then the Exodus, and the eventual journey ending at Mount Zion. God has promised to restore his people, fulfilled and remembered here in freedom from slavery in Egypt. Yet, it also points to future exodus, to freedom from the slavery of sin for all people that are children of God. Give thanks. Why? Because his steadfast love. Steadfast. Now, there's a, there's a word we don't hear very often in, in our day today, in our current culture. 
It's defined as being resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. I like that. A redeeming love that's unwavering towards the beloved. You know, Spurgeon notes that mercy is a great part of God's goodness, and, and that should concern us because we're sinners and, and we need his mercy. Going on to verse 5, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. The middle verse of all scripture. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now a single voice takes over. It's, it's not an ordinary individual. It's a voice that soon will be speaking as a king, as a rescued king. And we see the same distress and prayer in, in Psalm 116, which is also part of the Hallel Psalms in verses 3 and 4. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. We can discern that this is about a spiritual deliverance as much as a physical deliverance. You know, prayers that come out of distress, they generally come from the heart. Perhaps bitter in the offering, but sweet in the answering. So what can man do to me? We're now faced with an existential question here. Well, you know, actually can do quite a lot. If you've studied history, you must have noticed that most history is shaded by evil actions, by people in some way or another, by purpose, by ignorance or neglect. And, you know, the more courage you display, the more you'll be attacked. If you don't show any courage, you'll probably be pretty much left alone, probably oblivious to the threats. But if you show too much courage, as Hemingway wrote, the world will kill you. He does not say uh, here in the psalm that he wouldn't suffer, but it, that he wouldn't fear. Man can do nothing more than what God permits. The favor of God outweighs any hatred of man. And that, that's a good thing to remember. There's a theme here, and all through Scripture, going back to this, promises made, promises fulfilled. We find this in Psalm 56, in the, and in the New Testament, the psalmist writes, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? In God I trust. You know, that's, I think that's still on our currency, isn't it? I, I know there's been talk about taking it off. And in Hebrews, we can read, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Secondly, there's a question we need to ask ourselves. You know, how self-aware am I? What can I do to my fellow man? And what have I already done? How am I so different from those who might do me evil? You know, I think about Paul here, looking back on his own former life, he makes this point. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And he probably could have answered as I did. It also occurs to me to ask, what can I do to myself? Or what have I done to myself? If you're in Christ, you may ask this question and the answer is the same. The Lord is on your side. You know, God's not content to get out a cell phone and just take pictures with it. He takes part in our struggles. With man, we can never be sure of hidden agendas 
You know, someone may be using the end to justify a self-interest. You know, human objects of our, our trust, they fail us from a, either ability or generosity or affection or memory or betrayal. And, you know, that might make us mean or insecure or morose, but not with God. God elevates. God produces a quietness of spirit. He sanctifies and satisfies the soul. God deserves to be trusted. And, you know, to trust in anything else is an insult to his faithfulness. The second part of verse 7 is a picture of Jesus looking down from the cross. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It was originally written as, I shall look on my haters, I shall look them in the face, I shall make them cease from their contempt, I shall see the end of them. How about verse 9b, to trust in princes? You know, putting our confidence in God, the great king, we're made mentally and spiritually stronger, we're made dignified. The more we trust in God, the freer we become. In, in Psalm 146, we read, Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and who keeps faith forever. Verse 10, all the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Here's that center that I talked about. After each verse, you could put in verse 14b. He has become my salvation. You know, events in history, they, they display an enmity to God that is personal, uh, a rejection of God, of Jesus, to include even Israel, even Israel itself. This is a currency that's on view today in social media um, as nations rage and individuals rage on electronic platforms. Next up, Artificial intelligence, I find it kind of interesting. AI, that was one of the cities that Israel was supposed to uh, destroy. We have here a reminder of the world's fury and the hostility to the city of God. And the final gathering of all the nations against Jerusalem, when we read in Acts, Acts 4, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles, Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? against the Lord and against his anointed. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. That's verse, six, verse 12 now. There's, there's a strong sense of an inescapable snare here. Surrounded, about to be wiped out. You know, I, I, I think about that when I, uh, kind of from a military standpoint. I look at the Roman legions at Cani that were totally wiped out 200 years before Christ or Custer's last stand or Jerusalem in 70 AD. But, you know, I also thought about a little black girl going to school in 1950s Alabama, surrounded by hate. A crown of thorns. Have you ever been chased by just a few bees? This is more menacing, being surrounded, no way of escape. This is the venom that Jesus experienced from his arrest at Gethsemane to Calvary. They were numerous, yet they were insignificant. They were still capable of inflicting great pain and great agony. The name of the Lord is the only weapon that never fails in the day of spiritual battle. So, you know, beware, because too often we go into battle in our own name. Verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. 
In falling, integrity can depart. Confidence can be lost. It seems like God has taken a time out. We may ask, where is he? You know, this is a spiritual battle. But we also read the Lord will sustain. Where have we heard that before? Where have we heard that message? It's the Lord who helps where all others are unable. How good it is to understand this. When it, he says in verse 13b, but the Lord helped me. In 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is the same verse we find in Exodus 15. It's a victory song at the Red Sea. It applies also to verses 15 and 28 where the tempts of the righteous extol God. You know, the Exodus events, they all point to God's act of redemption in history. Promises made, promise fulfilled. It's consummated by the work of Christ. Sacrificed on a cross on Calvary's promontory. In, in these verses 14 to 18, we have a single-handed battle that becomes a victory of salvation. It's a victory of Christ, a victory now shared by those who repent and believe in him. Jesus the Messiah has become our salvation. The poet warrior David, he knew that he wasn't saved by his own devices. He ascribes his salvation to the Lord God. His deliverance is entirely by the hand of God. All the redeemed can say exactly the same thing. We can't endure any doctrine that would share a crown with Jesus, that we participated in his saving grace, as, as that would imply that his work was insufficient for our salvation. It's only Jesus. That would defraud Christ of the glory due him and the praise and the gratitude for his passion. We're reminded in, in Psalm uh, 91 because he holds me fast, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls on me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Verse 16, the, hand of the, the right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. You know, the psalmist here, he has this vivid sense of the presence and majesty of the Lord God. You know, it's, it's like the views we're getting through the web telescope currently uh, displaying the wonders of God in a cosmos that he created that has been unseen until now. Verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. This is faith's response to verse 13. The attacks of the enemy are a, a chastisement, but they also sanctify. Satan tormented Job for his purposes, but in reality, Job's sorrows were allowed by God for a greater purpose. And in the end, Job drew closer to God. Doesn't it sometimes seem like the, the heaviest chastising occurs to his most beloved, the most distinguished in his service? You know, Paul had a, a physical ailment that bedeviled him throughout his ministry, and knowing his former life before Damascus, I wonder if it was given to him to keep him humble and, and tender towards others. It may, you know, it may seem hard and even more dreadful, though, would be to hear God say, he's given over to idols, let him alone. Personally, I'm, I'm glad for the chastisement. It led me to the cross. Verse 17 is the verse that Martin Luther took as a motto for his life. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. 
You know, though his life was threatened, it reminded him of his calling to proclaim the gospel faithfully. Luther's life created a division in world history. Luther preached the word of God, and you know, to his advantage, at the same time he posted his 95 thesis, the printing press was being invented. Now the common man could learn to read and the word of God could be translated, which Luther did from Latin to German, and, and it spread throughout the whole world. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm reminded here of two gates in Matthew 7, one wide and one narrow. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate's wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You know, here we have a challenge and a counter-challenge. We, we see the same thing in verse 24, which we read earlier. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. You know, any glory that we've attained is our king's glory. It's Jesus who entered the gates of righteousness on his own merits. His suffering was perfected for us and on our behalf. You know, there, there are multitudes who don't care whether the gates of God's house are open or not. The thought of praising God doesn't cross their minds. There's going to come a time, though, when the gates of heaven are going to be shut like Noah's Ark. They are the gates of righteousness for those who are now righteous. There will never be anyone entering that defiles the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 21 through 23. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Here's a direct address by the psalmist to the God of salvation. His faith discerns the salvation. In these verses, we get a hint that the builders, the men of power in Israel, reject God's cornerstone, the new cornerstone, the covenant of grace. God's ultimate promise is being fulfilled now. David was rejected by those in authority, but God placed him in a position of highest honor. We have here a, a foreshadow of a, a greater king to come from David, Jesus Messiah. In many others, God had been pleased to accomplish his divine purposes. To none is this text so applicable as to the Lord Jesus. He's the living stone appointed by the Father, the ancient of days. The Jewish builders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they rejected him with disdain. They could see no excellence, nor could he be made to fit their ideal of what the Messiah should be. Jesus is a stone of another quarry not of their mind or their taste. So they cast him aside to the cross. We see this even today. Teachers of the gospel are apt to chase new philosophies. You know, there's the emergent gospel, the prosperity gospel, the dominion gospel. They do that sooner than just a simple gospel, which is the essence of Christ, to repent and believe. <clears throat> Peter, before the high priest, pointed out in Acts 4, 11 and 12, this Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders which had become the cornerstone. And there's no salvation. There is no salvation in anyone else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
Jesus himself in his ministry cited this Psalm 118, verse 22, to those in unbelief as applying to himself. He said, have you never read in the scriptures a stone that the, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. You never read that, huh? Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when he falls on anyone, it will crush him. You know, the, the ultimate tragedy of anyone in unbelief is that they've stumbled at God's way of salvation. Salvation is not by keeping the law. It's by faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith hears the promise. It hears the command. It believes and it acts. It acts in obedience. You know, there's an imperative here. The imperative that there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. No one comes to the Father except by Jesus. Is it marvelous in your eyes? The exalted position of Christ is not the work of man. It's God who has exalted Jesus despite the wisdom, the power, the authorities of this world. It's promises made, promises fulfilled. You know, this is a day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. On Palm Sunday, we see Jesus entering Jerusalem with the crowd shouting out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A new era is about to commence, but, but this will be a, a new day of God's own making. It's not confined to the Sabbath. This gospel day and its blessings are for those who believe. It's, it's bestowed on us through our Lord, through him becoming the cornerstone of a new covenant, a covenant not of law, but of grace. You know, every covenant, every promise made by God is fulfilled by God without the help of man. We see that from the beginning with Abraham. When God makes a covenant, it doesn't depend on our agreement. And again, note these I will phrases from Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 25, 27, save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine on us, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Save us, we pray. It's another verse quoted on Palm Sunday as Jesus enters Jerusalem. You know, the word Hosanna is derived from Hebrew for save us. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the same crowd that would in five days revile him, shouting that his blood be on them, were first shouting, Hosanna. And John writes in, in chapter 12, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Give us success by continuing to sanctify us. It's, it seems interesting to note that anyone who cries out for salvation is in a measure already being saved. From the Sermon on the Mount, I'm reminded of those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who thirst for Christ. It's all of us at one time. All of us sitting here were once in that place. And, and Christ, after he had conquered all his foes, he's now making intercession for us, making intercession for transgressors. We know who comes in the name of the Lord beyond all others. It's Jesus. And when we feel ourselves at home with God in the spirit of adoption that we're in, our first thought should be to thank our older brother. Thank him through whom uh, our sonship has come, descended on us. 
You know, the word festival, it's a, it's a bef means a befitting, befitting feast or a gala occasion. I think the Oscars are tonight, aren't they? I've been following that, but I know there's going to be a lot of galas going on tonight. What those participating could never have foreseen was that it would suddenly happen with explosive force on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. God's realities broke through all the symbolisms, all the archetypes, all the foreshadowing that we've read in the Hebrew Scriptures. The horns of the altar became the arms of the cross, and the festival, its festival itself was found in fulfillment by Jesus. Rabbi Paul writes, For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, but the leaven, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You know, no matter how tepid I may feel uh, about all that's happened to lead me to the cross and all my former desires to live my life the way that I wanted to live it, which still sometimes creeps into my mind, I, I'm always going to give thanks. I'm always going to have gratitude that the Lord has become my salvation. You know, the last two verses of Psalm 118 are bookends to verse 1 because his steadfast love does endure forever. And, you know, this being the last of the Hallel Psalms, we can be quite sure that the song Jesus and his disciples sang to end their Passover meal was Psalm 118. Jesus is the king. He's the salvation from the house of bondage. He's the sacrifice on the altar of the cross. As I said, all the great themes of Hebrew scriptures and of this psalm come together in Jesus. And, you know, now would be a, a fitting conclusion regarding this psalm, but there's something that I've pondered ever since I read this psalm in a Bible study over 20 years ago. And it's the reason I chose this, this psalm for tonight. As I came to write a conclusion, I was dwelling on how to end this with a flourish. And then I stopped and I thought, you know, we don't need a flourish. For the believer, for the unbeliever, we need a savior. We need Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't end with a pervasive, persuasive flourish. Instead, the Holy Spirit pierces the heart. He convicts us by pointing to Jesus. You know, we can't step into the sandals of Jesus, but we can certainly step into the sandals of the disciples, including Judas, including Nicodemus. They're all mirrors for us. They reflect us back to ourselves. So I want to take a moment to step into that narrative. You know, picture this. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet to begin the Passover meal. He's even washed the feet of Judas, and now the Passover meal's finished. Judas is left to betray him. Jesus has prayed for his disciples and for us and for all who will come to believe. They've finished this meal by singing the last hymn, Psalm 118, and now they leave, and they're walking inside Jerusalem, leaving the walled city, going to the east. They go down into a little valley. They're going towards the Mountain, Mount of Olives into a garden. And I'm, and I'm wondering, what's, what's in their minds? What's in Jesus' mind? What can man do to me? Is this verse in mind as they approach the garden? You know, Jesus knows what's about to occur. He's become the stumbling stone that fulfills verse 22 in Isaiah 28. These next three days are to be the spiritual inflection point of all human existence. Until the next three days are completed, I wonder, does he keep this in mind? The middle verse of all revelation, do, you, do we attend to this verse in times of confusion and stress? It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. 
He's gone to Gethsemane to pray. This is another wilderness temptation. Psalm 118 must still be in his mind. Has that ever happened to you? Going about your day, you find yourself humming a hymn you sang in church or dwelling on a passage of Scripture? You know, Jesus knows his followers, they're going to be scattered, even as they are now. But he's promised us a helper. A helper will become available when he leaves, the Holy Spirit. And, you know, putting the historical context with Jesus in mind at Gethsemane, I think that's important. At the Passover meal, they've sung about the mercies of God. And now Jesus is about to demonstrate our claim to God's mercy and grace by dying on a cross for us. He's long known that these events would take place, and he's moving forward to accomplish an atoning sacrifice for our sins, fulfilling all the purposes for which he was sent. He's the Passover lamb. He's the unblemished sacrifice on the altar. He's the king. He's the salvation from our sin and bondage. You know, all the great themes of redemption in this book, the Bible, and in this psalm, they all come together to be revealed in Jesus. We're often in Gethsemane too. Jesus warns his disciples, even at this hour, to pray that they may not enter into temptation. You know, temptation could be a panoply of sins. But the greatest temptation is not to believe in God's promised deliverer and his salvation, the atoning death and the resurrection from death of Jesus. The promise made is now fulfilled. In Gethsemane, Jesus asks a question. It's it's kind of a mechanical question, the sort that Mary asked the angel, like, how is this to be, as opposed to Zechariah, his lack of faith in that, you know, he would father a son in his old age. The question Jesus prays is not due to a lack of faith. Is there any other way to take this cup of death from me? You know, Jesus sweats blood. He's contemplating what he's about to suffer. His question, is there any other way? It resounds through the history of salvation. And the answer is no. No other way. And in this way, Jesus will become the only way to God. You know, before Pastor John was intubated and put on a respirator, his final words to us, the Lord will sustain. I'll never forget that witness. And it's now a resounding echo from this psalm. It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in man. He's become my salvation. In his distress, he may not fear. We don't know. You know, I, I was thinking about this, and, and I was really having trouble dealing with the thought, what does God know about being a man? And I was reading along, you know, what does God know about being human. I was thinking about this for the last couple months. What does God know about pain and fear, about dying? You know, does he, does he know it intellectually? Does he know it in reality? And I thought, should I even be asking this question? And then I come to Job. I was reading Job as part of my daily reading plan. And, and in Job 10, he sa- Job says to God, have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your years as man's years? I thought, okay, well, if Job can ask that question, I guess it's okay for me to ask the question too. So here's the answer. God became human. By incarnation, Christ is going to know what man can do to him. He's going to feel pain. He's going to feel abandonment. He's going to feel death. He's going to know the hell of separation from the love of God the Father. Jesus is going to drink this cup of God's wrath. He was willing to drink, drink the cup of God's judgment when every instinct in him shrank from the prospect of God-forsakenness that would take place at Calvary. God's will was so important to him 
that he finished his mission by dying for us. And time and again, Jesus had made it clear to his followers that he came to do the will of the Father. He told his disciples that his food was to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his work. In obedience, he never varied from the will of God, even at the cross. So, you know, let me pause for a moment. Have you ever been reading your Bible and all of a sudden you have an epiphany? I read the Psalms and the Proverbs every six months, and at this juncture, I didn't plan it this way, but last week I came to Psalm 116, and I read, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. You know, earlier I had mentioned how God reverses the order of words and actions. God does the reverse of what we expect. His grace now comes as Jesus empties the cup of wrath so as to fill it with salvation. That stopped me. Gratitude, praise, worship. I, I realized that the cup of wrath has become the cup of salvation. By drinking the cup of God's wrath until it was empty, Jesus fills it with his death and resurrection to become the cup of salvation so that verse 14 does indeed read, he has become my salvation. He's going to be surrounded on every side by the likes of swarming bees. He will wear a crown of thorns as he looks down from the cross, but those that physically killed him in unbelief, they're the ones who are going to be quenched. The unbelief of man, it's not going to make the promises of God to no effect. The Lord is his strength and his song, and the Lord has become salvation to all who repent and believe. God raised Jesus from the dead, which he became, in a sense, his salvation. It's kind of a simple analogy, I know. In Psalm 118, he was rejected by the builders. He became the chief cornerstone. And this was God's doing, to send his son to sacrifice his life, to become a propitiation for us. And it is a marvelous thing. That Sunday of resurrection... That's the day that God has made. So, you know, don't stumble on the rock of salvation, Jesus, because he is the promise made, the promise fulfilled. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, and God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. He has become my salvation. He's become your salvation.